as the potter and we are the clay, as indeed he is and we are the hands with which he uses to mold our hearts and shape us into what he would have us to be is the word of God. So we, having prayed in song to ask the Lord to change our hearts, we now turn to the word and trust him to do that. So turn with me to Titus 3. We continue our study through the book of Titus and uh, continue to seek after uh, the work of God in our own heart. It's a, a joy to be in this book. I have been thrilled with how God has taught me much through this book. It's an incredibly practical book driven by the application of sound doctrine to everyday living. And it's a tremendous joy to study the book and just see the very clear, obvious application to our own life uh, as you read and study. Uh, another one of the, the reasons that I'm so compelled to, this, uh, to the study of this book and to the preaching of the book is because it's so very similar to the context we face in our current age and day. What Titus and Paul face in the first century in uh, the church of Crete and in the culture of the Roman Empire is so very much what we are uh, facing and staring down in our own day. So as Christians were being greatly influenced in this book by the world and as the church was in need of an apostolic word to set things in order, so too today. Uh, as the churches of Crete face the, the confusion uh, about how the church should be structured and how it should operate and, and function, so too today. With competing words from false teachers and from legalistic Jews who wanted to use the wisdom of men to bring about the holiness of God, so too in the church today. The church of Paul's day needed strong leaders to to be strong based on sound doctrine, not based on strong personalities, driven by the truth and compelled by grace to be the leaders of Christ's church needed for that day, and so too, obviously, today. And so in the short letter, Paul writes to one of his closest sons in the faith, Titus, and he has been left on the island of Crete to oversee the churches there. We know there was over 100 cities on the island of Crete, whether Every one of them had a church in it, likely not, but there were many churches on the island of Crete that Titus was now called and charged by Paul to set in order. They were in their infancy and in development, and Titus was as the, the messenger of the apostle to carry truth to bear upon the body of Christ in those locations. And Paul's concern, as he writes this short letter, is for the godliness of the church, which accords with sound doctrine. He's calling the church to, to be trained in the school of grace where they learn to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. As we've kind of worked our way through, you've seen that chapter 1 has a, a basic focus on a life adorning sound doctrine as it relates to the church. So this is what sound doctrine looks like as it's, as it's pressed upon the life of the church. Chapter 2, and, and these aren't hard and fast categories, but generally, chapter 2 is the, the life of, of a, a sound doctrine Christian in the home. This is what it looks like to be trained by grace in the home. And then as we turn the page to chapter 3, we see that this is what a, a Christian life looks like in the broader culture, in a pagan and godless culture. This is how we should now live in a world like ours. If you were to read through Titus just in one sitting, which I encourage you to do, I don't know what your current reading plan is, but 
uh, one of the things that you often should do is, is to make it a habit of sitting down and just reading through large sections of Scripture. It's not enough to read a couple of verses here or there as part of your devotional plan or to, to read a chapter and just only do that. Take more time than that at different times, not be legalistic about it, but you need a broader sense of the scope of Scripture. And so it's good to sit down and read, and it'll take you 20 minutes to read the letter from Paul to Titus at the most. And if you were to do that, you would see several lists throughout the book in which Paul says, this is what it looks like to be God's people in God's church. And it's contrasted with several character qualities that mark the world and should be absent in the church. And so Paul is saying, you you should be learning in the school of grace. If you've been saved by grace, you're to be sanctified by grace. And if you're being sanctified by grace, this is what it looks like. You won't look like this, and you will look like this. I think as American Christians living in a, a wicked and evil day, we're largely asleep on this point. And I don't mean specifically Newton Bible Church, but just the church in general. Having grown up in a society which generally valued the, the morality and the ethics and the standards of righteousness as presented in, in Scripture, uh, we've taken for granted that that's just that's how you live life. But as you know and see and are alarmed at, the foundations of uh, morality and culture are quickly eroding and our nation is then in constant turmoil as these clashing worldviews are fundamentally opposed to one another and fighting with one another in broader culture. Pretty soon we're going to be living, and maybe it's already true, in a, a context in which it will be completely countercultural to be a follower of Christ and to have a life marked by his grace. You will look inherently different in how you operate in life than how the world looks and how it operates in this culture and in this day and in this age. And so we need a mindset and a life shaped by sound doctrine. And that's what Paul presents to Titus and then to us. Tonight in particular, I want to focus on the first two verses of chapter 3. As we turn the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3, Paul has just called Titus to declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, to lay before his people a life shaped by this gospel of grace. He's to proclaim and exhort and rebuke with all authority, Paul told him in in, uh, 2.15. And now he transitions and says, this is now what a grace-shaped life should look like in relationship to the world around you, to a godless society that has no concern for the truth, this is what your life should look like in the world. As you see the progression through that little letter, you see the idea of putting the church in order in chapter 1, and then putting the home in order in chapter 2, and then putting the Christian's life in order as it relates to the world in chapter 3. And all of that is driven by and shaped by the sound doctrine of the gospel of grace. If you're like me, and I think you are, it's tempting as Christians in a world like this to put our heads in the sand, to to worry about our church, to worry about our home, to create our own little bubbled existence, and to have little or no contact with unbelievers around us, isolating ourselves from them so as to protect ourselves. But frankly, it's just easier that way and only have contact with unbelievers where needed, but make it as brief as possible. Paul says to Titus, this gospel, which is 
is constantly training us, is calling us to live in, in ways in relationship to the world around us, not just when it might happen, but because we are to be in contact with the world around us. We're to be rubbing shoulders with unbelievers in our life and in our world. And so this gospel training us constantly calls us to live in ways in relationship to the world so as to adorn that sound doctrine. So as we grow in godliness, as grace shapes us, this is what it will look like to interact with the world. So Titus 3, verse 1. I'm actually going to read all the way down through verse 8. It's kind of a a whole section here. We're just going to take the first two verses tonight. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul intends to, through Titus, call the church to be zealous for good works. And the benefit or the the end of that is that it is excellent and profitable for all people. And that just inherently makes sense in your mind. If you live the way described in verses 1 through 8, you will be a blessing to others around you, to your family, to your church family, but beyond that, to the world as you live within a godless culture. We know the emphasis in chapter 3 is shifting a little bit to the Christian's relationship to the outside world because right away in verse 1, he says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Those are government entities appointed by God over you. It's, it's those who have authority entrusted to them by God. It's, it's not a, uh, the godly authority of the church per se. It's the, the godless authority even within the world. You're to be submissive to them. But we know it by more than that. So if you look at the context, verse 3, he contrasts the life of godliness he's described in verses 1 and 2 with what you used to be in verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. So like you used to be and like the world still is. You shouldn't be like that anymore. You should be changed by the grace that saved you. You should be shaped by sound doctrine to live in a different way. So that's what he lays out before them in uh, verses 1 and 2 in particular. Our behavior in society is not any longer based on how we are treated or how others act, but it's now based upon the transforming grace and gospel of Jesus. I want to point you quickly to two truths in these first two verses of Titus 3, truths that help us understand a a life transformed by grace that relates to a godless society. The first is the persistent call of grace, the persistent call of grace. The second truth is the pattern of godly conduct. So see first the persistent call of grace in verse 1. 
Paul says to Titus, remind them. It's a present active imperative. It's a continuous action that Titus, as an under-shepherd, under his Lord in the church, is to do in the church. This is a defining uh, command of his ministry, to be reminding the church of these things, to lay before them the things they're prone to forget. This is the persistent call of the sanctifying and saving grace of God. God is a relentless trainer of your soul. Having rescued you from your sin and rescued you from eternal condemnation, he is unwilling to let you sit and soak and sour in your own isolated godliness. He he is compelled by his love for you as an attentive and loving father to move you along on the spectrum of conformity to his son. And he does that through this ministry of reminding. Our lives as Christians are the ongoing validation of the power of the gospel in the world. You're the living proof of Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Your life, your uh, lifestyle shaped by sound doctrine is the validating proof of that reality, the power of the gospel to shape and change and redeem lives. Your life is living proof of that. And so we're reminded to be compelled to this shaping and sanctifying grace. But how does he remind us? Well, in our text, it's the role of Titus. He's a proclaimer, an exhorter, a rebuker with the word in the church. He's to be God's mouthpiece, calling God's people to remember that which they know. This is so very much of what it means to to be a shepherd in the flock of God. It's to, to stand before them and say to them, listen, here's what you know, let me remind you. This is what God has said. You've heard it hundreds of times, but hear it again, believe and obey. We know from Old Testament texts and New Testament texts that this is the constant danger of the people of God. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 106 that the children of Israel forgot God. They forgot his promises. They forgot his commands. And they wandered away and fell away in disbelief. Jesus had that same concern about the disciples in Matthew 16 when he's questioning them and they're doubting him. And he he asked them, don't you remember the five loaves that fed the 5,000 and how many baskets of Leftovers you gathered up. They were failing to remember the the power of the Messiah and the nature of God and the ability of the Savior to keep his promise and work his works in the world. And forgetting is the sure path to faithless departure from the Lord. All of your sin patterns can be traced back to failing to remember what God has said. Failing to remember the grace he has given to you. Failing to remember the power you have over sin in your identification with Christ. All of your inability to be faithful to the ministry God's called you to do, whether in the home or in the church or in the world, can be traced back to failing to remember things you know, basic ABC type stuff of your faith. It's not that you can't grow and learn new things and and come across new truth as 
presented in the word. It's a, a gold mine of truth that you'll never plumb the depths of. But most of our issue is not that we need some new truth presented in some amazing way by some fresh teacher. The reality of our issue is we need to be reminded of things we already know, presented in fresh ways, with fresh zeal, compelled by grace. But we need be called to remember that which God has said. This is why Paul and Peter and John in their letters all talk about the ministry of reminder. Peter says, that's my ministry to you is to remind you of things you already know. And so Paul says to Titus, Titus, remind them. Be persistent. Be unending in your ministry to remind them of the truth they know. This really then is why it's so important to gather with the body of Christ. This is what we learn in the book of Hebrews, as Hebrews calls us to the supremacy of Jesus for the perseverance of our faith. As the writer of Hebrews, which I think is Paul, but that's another side note that we can talk about another time. As he calls us to the supremacy of Jesus for the sake of ongoing faith in Jesus, he presents to us in chapter 3 and again in chapter 10 the necessity, the the beauty of the body of Christ to remind us daily of things we already know. In chapter 3, as he reflects on the Old Testament Israel's faithlessness in the book of Numbers, he says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Then in chapter 10, he says, let us consider, and technically in the, in the Greek text, let us consider one another, how to stir up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God has given us the, the ministry of reminder to one another within the body to keep us sharp in our faith and our commitment to our Lord. This is the persistent call of grace upon your soul. But I want you to see also the pattern of godly conduct, and that's the rest of verse 1, and then into verse 2. This is the pattern that that grace lays before us. So if you know this saving grace that's transformed you, redeemed you, and is transforming you, this is the conduct that your life should have. This is the pattern of, of lifestyle that should be evident in you. As you look at the verses, you haven't counted yet, but there's seven there, seven reminders that Paul says, remind them of these seven things. Five of them are positive, two of them are negative. And as you look at them, they're all relational. They're all, here's how you should relate to others in your life and specifically in the world around you. This is what it looks like to to be shaped by grace in relationship to others. The first one he says is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. What does it look like to have a a life that's rescued from sin in a world in which sin still dominates through godless rulers? Does it look like the freedom now to thumb your nose at human authority and, and live your own life under the authority of God and his word and and do your own thing disregarding human rulers. Well, Paul addressed that already in Romans 13. 
he is now, based on that text, saying to Titus, remind them of those things. That those human authorities, even authorities like Nero, even authorities like Diocletian, even authorities like what we have in our own country today are set up by God, put in place by God. And, and our, our responsibility as under God is to be in submission under them. Submission simply means to place yourself under the authority of another, to put yourself in rank. It's not a, a, a word of a quality or a word of, of your worth in the scheme of humanity. We know that in Christ, all are equal at the foot of the cross. This is an issue of, of given, God-given authority in various spheres in this world. It's delegated authority by God. All authority is His, given by God to different spheres, the home and the church and the governments in the nations of the world. And Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to their rulers and their authorities. This is especially important in Crete because we already learned in chapter 1, verse 10, that many in Crete were insubordinate, were non-submissive, were demanding their own way, going their own way, doing their own thing. He goes on to say, especially those of the circumcision party. So it was a mark of the false teachers on Crete to be teaching falsely, but also to be insubordinate themselves, to not come under the authority of God and his word, nor of ruling authorities that God had put over them in the world. So while they're calling others to submit to their law-induced false teaching, obey the Mosaic law and prove yourself to be a good Christian, that was their message. While they're doing that, they are themselves not submitting to God-given authority in their life, proving thereby that it's false teaching, not from God. But those who've received the sound doctrine of the gospel, Paul says, are to look different, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And in a godless society like what ours is today, this is going to stand out like wearing a parka in July in Kansas. Right? Because what is the, the DNA of our culture as it relates to governing authorities now? There's general disrespect. There's behavior which is rebellious and, and violent against ruling and governing authorities. If you don't like something, you just riot and make it happen. In our godless society, you thumb your nose at those who have been entrusted with ruling over you. You're expected to, to rebel and go after whatever it is you want or however it is you think society should be reshaped. The mantra of the day is tear it all down and build it back the way you want a completely insubordinate mentality and attitude towards what God has put in place. Beloved, we're to be different than that. We're to, we're to follow after our Lord as we evidence lives changed by his grace and submissive to governing authorities. Now, I know you're thinking of all the exceptions, right? And you're already there. I don't even need to go there. Acts 4, Acts 5, you can... Work that out in your own mind. When they tell you to disobey God, then by all means, obey God. Because their authority has been given to them by God. And if they're telling you to do something that God's not telling you to do, or telling you to do something that, that you're supposed to do that God has said, and they won't let you, obey God. Okay, that's the exception. That's few and far between and rare beyond rare often in our experience. 
Christians are to be submissive, placing themselves under the ruling authorities. Hand in hand with that is the next one. That is to be obedient. You know whether or not you're submissive if indeed you are obedient. Submission is not just an attitude that stays in your heart. Submission is a posture of relationship worked out in obedience to those authorities in your life. And this in our natural state, apart from Christ, is so impossible. Honestly, in your own heart, you know that you want what you want. There's almost nothing worse than someone telling you what to do. Telling you how this should go or your role in whatever it is at work, at home, in the church, or in society. You want, you, you want what you want. And our hearts are always pulling us to do things our way, to, to be our own boss and to run our own lives. And we just want ruling authorities and any authority in any sphere to just butt out and leave us alone and not interfere. And certainly there are conversations to be had there. But submission as given to us by grace will flesh itself out in obedience to that authority. So if we have been saved by grace and sanctified by grace, our lives are to be patterned by obedience, marked by obedience. And this is just like Jesus, is it not? We saw that this morning. He had the power. He had actual authority over the ones who were coming to arrest him. But he gave himself over in submission, according to the purpose and plan of the Father, to accomplish our redemption. Grace trains you like that. Helps you look like Then he says to be ready for every good work. So to be submissive, be obedient, and be ready for every good work. The idea here is to be spring-loaded, to do good. Grace does not just teach you to to keep your nose clean and not get in trouble, to, to stay out of the fray of the world. Rather, you're to be salt and light in a world that is constantly decaying and corrupting. You're to be, as a Christian, proactive in looking for ways to do good to those around you in the world. Seeing a neighbor who has a problem or a a need you could address, you should be spring-loaded by grace to be the initiator to help them, to show them the, the goodness and the glory of Christ as you enter into their life and help them with a need that is difficult and hard, and yet you model the good works of the gospel as it's fleshed out in your life. And in that way, we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that we are Christ's own special possession. And what marks us as Christ's own special possession? One that he was willing to give up his own life, to, to pay the price of his own life to purchase this special possession. That's us. That's the church. What marks that special possession? He says those who are zealous for good works. So if we're in Christ and we're Christ's people, then we're to be like our Savior. Spring-loaded to do good in a corrupt, godless, bad world. How did Jesus operate in a godless and corrupt world? Was he not always constantly looking for ways to help others? I know, he was the Son of God with omniscience and omnipotence and 
a purpose and a plan to prove he was the Messiah. I understand all that. That's not the, the point of the question. He viewed his life as that which is to be a blessing to others, and indeed ours are the same. Instead of being like the lazy coworker who's always looking for any possible way out of work, we are to be trained by grace to always be looking for work. And this is a shift in how you view life, how you view yourself, how you view others, how you view your purpose in the world. We're now slaves of grace, rescued by our Savior, purchased by his blood. And we have good works that God has foreordained for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. The, the outworking of that grace, Ephesians 2.1-9, through 9, is that we walk in the good works that have been foreordained for us to do as he's rescued us from our sin. And so now your whole mindset shifts as you think about yourself in relationship to this world and in relationship to sinners in this world. You realize you're not just saved from sin to sit and soak and sour in personal, ineffective, ineffective holiness. Rather, we're saved from sin to be useful to our master in accomplishing his work in the world to do the good works he's appointed for us to do, to be spring-loaded, ready for every good work. I don't know about you, I, I have to do daily inventory of my view of me in God's world and his purpose. I, I woke up Saturday morning with a long way to go to get ready for today. And I was spring-loaded for laziness and giving into the flesh. That's what I was spring-loaded for, coming out of bed. Off the pillow, it was all about me. I had to remind myself of the grace of God shown to me through my Savior that has rescued me from self-focused concern and lifestyle and dominating of my schedule and my personal time. I had to repent of my desire to give in to my flesh. I had to lay before the Lord on the altar of his grace everything in me that wanted to do anything but what he wanted me to do. And as I wrestled with the Lord and I laid it before him, by his grace, he compels me, he cleanses me, and then he compelled me to get up and serve him. Now, I did not mean the struggle was not over. There were several battles throughout the day, believe me, because I wanted to do anything but what I was called to do in prep for Sunday. This is the, the work we have to do, to be spring-loaded for the good works that God's called us to do and has trained us to do by his grace. And then we are to speak evil of no one. So we're ready to do every good work, and we're also to speak evil of no one. The word is literally to not blaspheme anyone. Kind of pointing back to, to those who rule over us in governing positions, but it, it goes beyond that. It's, it's to anyone, to all sorts of people in the godless world around us, everyone you come across, to speak evil of no one. And, and what he means is to not speak in a disrespectful way that, that demeans them and denigrates them. We're not to slander the, the godless in the world around us or revile them or defame them with our words in a way which pushes them down and, and elevates us, makes us look better and makes them look bad. 
We're to guard our words as we're trained by grace that we are careful how we talk about the world around us and namely, specifically, the people in the world around us. Now, does that mean you can't say anything bad about anyone? Haven't you wrestled with that as you've read this verse before? Wait, I can't say anything bad even if it's true about them? Well, look what Paul does as he thinks about people who need the truth said about them and it's bad he speaks it clearly and carefully and directly in, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. He calls them what they are. They're insubordinate. They're liars. They're deceivers. They're gluttons. They're false teachers. They're facing the condemnation of God. He names it as it is, but he does so not to raise himself up as he steps on their head in slander. He does so so as to instruct the church how they should operate in light of those who have such godless character in their midst. He's plainly addressing a problem and then giving the plain solution. And so too for us. And so, beloved, we must be careful here. Our desire to despise our governing authorities with our words is not a grace-fueled desire. It is a flesh-driven one. Your desire to, to mock our president and to make fun of all of his stupid comments. And and it's a sham, and it's a mockery to what our country stands for. I agree with you. But your desire to to talk about that in a way which is is defaming him and slandering him is not a spirit-driven desire. That is rooted in your sinful flesh, absent of the grace of the gospel. You remember Paul when he was put on trial in Acts? And he was in Jerusalem. It was a very contentious scene. They wanted to kill him. The the mob had risen up, accusing him of bringing Greeks into the temple. And they were seizing the opportunity to get rid of Paul once and for all, much like they had done with Jesus years before. He's put on trial and he appears before the high priest and he gets accused. and, And in response, he calls the high priest a whitewashed tomb. And, and in his response, he, he says things he ought not say. And, and then he gets slapped by the soldier and says, Don't, you should not talk to the high priest that way. And he says in Acts 23, verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He's quoting Exodus 22, verse 28. Go back to that text. The whole verse says this, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Beloved, it's tantamount to reviling God who has put these rulers over you, to defame them with your words, to curse them with your words, to slander them, to speak evil of them. It does not mean you cannot speak the truth about the horrific, ungodly things they are doing in leading our country. But you must think, why am I saying this? What is my purpose? What am I accomplishing as I give my latest commentary on the events of the day? He combines that then with avoiding quarreling in our text. So speak evil of no one and don't be quarrelsome. So grace trains us to, to not be quarrelsome with the godless who are around us. The idea here is not to be belligerent, to not be hard to get along with, to not be combative or 
always picking a fight, to not have the posture of, of being ready to put people in their place with the truth, not being known by your posture as the fighting fundamentalist. And I'm all for sticking to the fundamentals and fighting for them when needed. But our posture in the world ought not be one of always looking for the next fight to put the godless in their place and conquer with the truth of Christ in that sense in argument. We must be willing to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must not be worried about being known for what we are for and what we're against. We must take stands as the church of Jesus Christ for all of the truth of God as it relates to the church and to your individual life. We must follow the example of our Lord Jesus and be clear and consistent and transparent in our message to the world. So much so that if at the end of our life we're put on trial and they say to us, what did you teach? We can say, you know what I taught. I've been saying it for years. We should be transparent and clear with the world, but we don't need to be needlessly contentious. We don't need to be combative with the truth, always looking for a fight to win. Does your unsaved neighbor avoid talking to you because you always end up in some kind of disagreement in which you seek to put them in their place? Have you learned the Christian grace of disagreeing in a kind and calm and resolute way? The Christian who's being trained by the grace of God is open to reason, is peaceable, is full of mercy, is gentle. James said that in James 3, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We operate according to the wisdom of, the, of above, of, from heaven. We are to be peacemakers, gentle, open to reason, impartial, full of mercy and grace. He combines this then with being gentle. This is the antonym to being quarrelsome. This is the opposite. If you're going to be quarrelsome, you can't be gentle. We have to learn by the grace of God to be kind and courteous and tolerant that's guided by truth, not tolerant of any aberrant view, but tolerant in the sense of in a relational way, merciful to others. Grace teaches us to love people well and to patiently engage them even in their ungodliness. This is the relational grace which gives us the freedom and the right to speak truth into a godless society. When we handle them courteously and kindly and gently as Christ would, while firmly holding the line of truth, God will, in that relationship, give us the privilege to speak the truth clearly. Maybe never convincing them, but holding this unique posture and pattern shaped by the gospel, holding the truth, gracious and generous and merciful with all. Then he finishes this by saying, be courteous to all. Be courteous to all. One of the lexicons defines that word this way. It says it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Be courteous to all in the sense that you aren't overly impressed with how important you are in relationship 
to others. You see what the gospel of God does is it puts you in your place in relationship to everyone else in your life. It shows you what's truly important and where you stand in relationship to what's truly important. We learned about this already in Philippians 2, didn't we? Where Paul lays before the Philippian church that seemed to have some, at least, who were struggling with pride, thinking of themselves as more important than others in the body, typically or namely Yodia and Syntyche, who were arguing with each other because they they thought their own self-importance greater than the other. And so Paul lays before them in chapter 2 the the downward steps of Jesus towards humility. He says to them, think like Jesus thought. Put his mind in your own mind. And take these downward steps to greater humility. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what grace does to you is it shapes you to be like Jesus and makes you a servant to all. And thereby you're courteous and kind. You don't overvalue your own self-importance. And you're willing then to be gracious and and servant-minded and do good works for all in your life. Essentially, what Paul is doing is he's calling us to be transformed into the image of Jesus. These seven things we've gone through are, are exactly what we see uh, in our Lord. This is like a description of his character. And Paul is saying, if, if you know the grace of Christ in the gospel of Christ, then your life should be being changed to look like Christ, and specifically in these ways. And grace is constantly calling you to to put off the things we see in verse 3, to not be foolish or disobedient or led astray or slaves to various passions and pleasures, to not pass our days in malice or envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a graceless uh, pattern of life. Rather, we're to put on Christ as we see laid out for us in verses 1 and 2. So I wonder, how does your life look? Better yet, what would the unbelievers in your life say, if I could pull them and and say, hey, tell me about so-and-so. What does their life look like to you? Does it fit this pattern of grace? May God help us to do so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel which saves us and is sanctifying us. We pray that you would mercifully move us along in this process of being made to look more like Jesus. Help us, Father, to not rely upon our own strength or our own mechanisms, spiritually speaking, to make this happen. Father, we rely and depend upon you as your spirit reminds us of the truth and shapes us to be more like Jesus. Would you, Father, help us to be submissive to your will and your way and your work in all these things? And then would you make us effective for your usefulness in this world, especially to the unbelievers in our lives. Would you help us to model these things evidenced in this text and to then have the right to speak to them of the gospel we know and love. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.